Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. I have a very special guest on today that I'm very excited to have on. Uh, he is the author of the book, Truth Seeker, The Life of Joseph F. Merrill, Scientist, Educator, and Apostle. Now, what makes this book so interesting is that he's not really all that well known by most Latter-day Saints. Matter of fact, I read a lot of history of the LDS. I'm pretty knowledgeable of it, but I had very little knowledge of him. I knew more about his apostle father, father uh, um, Mariner Merrill, uh, but this is uh, his, his son. And so it's just an interesting uh, thing. Now, uh, Casey Griffith, thank you for coming on to my show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I just want to ask you, um, before we get started, I'm going to read your bio. Uh, Casey Paul Griffiths is an assistant teaching professor of his church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University. He was born and raised in Delta, Utah. He served as a missionary in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, before returning home to complete a BA degree in history at Brigham Young University 2002. He later earned an MA in religious education and a PhD in educational leadership and foundations at BYU in 20, 2007 and 2012. His studies focused on the development of religious education programs among the Latter-day Saints. Before joining the faculty in religious education at BYU, Griffiths served in seminaries and institutes for 11 years as a teacher and curriculum writer. His research focuses on the history of religious education among Latter-day Saints, the history of the Church in the Pacific, and diverse movements associated with the Restoration. He is married to Elizabeth Otley Griffiths, and they live in Saratoga Springs with their four adorable children. All right, so Casey, oh, um, what made you decide to write a book about Joseph Merrill, somebody that you didn't know anything about, and uh, what, 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 what was the impetus for doing something like this? Um, well, I sort of stumbled backwards into it. Uh, I can't say that I planned it out deliberately. Um, I was a master's student back in 2005, just searching desperately for a thesis topic. Uh, and at the time, I was really interested in uh, Latter-day Saint millennialism in the Civil War. Uh, but that is such a broad field that I was having a hard time narrowing it down. And so I went out to lunch with Scott Esplin, who just was named the Dean of Religion at BYU. And Scott uh, told me, hey, there's a, an apostle named Joseph Merrill, whose papers have been donated to BYU, and nobody has ever really touched them. And uh, I, I went down to BYU that afternoon and spent four or five hours in the archives and realized there was just a cache of material uh, there that was almost unmatched. Um, a lot of times in our church, uh, apostles' papers uh, get put into storage and then they stay there for sometimes decades. Uh, but these papers were donated to BYU with no restrictions on them. Everybody was able to access everything. And as I read through it, I started to come to realize how important a figure Joseph Merrill was uh, for how little publicity he's received in the church. Uh, he really was transformational and his life captures this transformative period uh, for the Latter-day Saints in, in a way I've never seen anybody else's life do so. So it is interesting and I'm so glad that I uh, read the book because it, uh, you know a lot of people a lot of LDS people tell me I know about 99.9% uh, more about Mormon history than most LDS members do uh, 
but I don't know if that's true, but I do know more 99.9% than most LDS members do about Joseph because nobody knows <laughs> anything about him. <laughs> now, most, people, most people that study, study Latter-day Saint history study the early history. So um, for a lot of people, church history ends in 1847 when Brigham Young comes into the Salt Lake Valley. The first article I published, my, my dad um, said, what are you writing about? Nothing interesting's happened since Brigham Young died. And I just basically had to push back and say, there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happened uh, since Brigham Young died. And that's kind of the, the place where uh, I feel like a lot of Latter-day Saint historians can find really fertile ground is when we think of a Latter-day Saint, typically, you know, someone like you, Steve, um, who, who's coming from outside the faith will have two images in their mind. And one will be kind of like a long bearded, wild haired polygamist that lives in the mountains. And the second image will be, you know, like a straight-laced guy who's clean-shaven and in a business suit, someone like Mitt Romney or Mike Lee. Um, the question is, how did we get from there to there? And the middle connecting is Joseph Merrill's life. Joseph Merrill is born into a polygamist family in the mountains of Utah. He's, he's the first son of a fourth wife. And by the end of his life, he is the guy in the suit that's clean-shaven. He still has a mustache. Uh, but is respected widely within society. The transition the Latter-day Saints made in about 50 years from being these, these polygamists that are, are, are outcasts of society to being in a lot of ways in the mainstream of American society is, is captured in the lives of just a few individuals. Reed Smoot is one that's really good to capture that. Reed Smoot kind of brought us into the government and said Latter-day Saints can be civic and and uh, national political leaders. What Reed Smoot did for politics, Joseph Merrill did for education in the church. Uh, he was the first one to kind of pioneer this effort to say we can still go to um, universities and, and uh, secular schools, but maintain our unique, unique identity as Latter-day Saints. And he spent his entire life trying to bridge those gaps to say you can be you can be an educated uh, person that's part of the world, but also be true to your faith and your unique identity as a Latter-day Saint. Well, and so let's get to the beginning of this story. Now, um, first of all, he is uh, the, uh, the fourth wife, uh, Maria. Um, he he's, he's, comes from that marriage, and, uh, and he gr grows up kind of, it, was, it seemed like it was kind of an idyllic uh, childhood. Uh, they didn't have everything, but they were uh, self-sufficient. Uh, it sounds like he had a pretty uh, good childhood. Yeah. One of, he, he writes some history about his father, Mariner, who's an apostle also, president of the Logan Temple. And one of the main reasons he says deliberately why he wanted to write about his father was so that everybody wouldn't think that plural marriage was a bad system. There, there were abuses within plural marriage. I'm not, I'm not blind to that. And it was difficult for a lot of people, but Joseph was always of the opinion of it was a good, it was a good way for me to be raised. He felt like his mom uh, was supported and, and loved by his father, but that she had a fair degree of independence. Um, Mariner had, I think, 26 sons and a fair number of his sons and most of his daughters were able to get higher education, including PhDs because Merrill provided for them and, and uh, encouraged them to go out and, and get as much education as possible. So at the same time that you've got Joseph Merrill working at the U, you've got Amos Merrill, who's working at BYU, and a number of these Merrill children that, that grew up in warm, loving, accepting homes, 
Uh, and also we're encouraged to get the type of education that would allow them to be really successful in life. So I, again, I, I'm, the, I'm not arguing for a return to plural marriage or anything like that, but sometimes plural marriage is only talked about in negative terms within the church. And here's an example of someone who obviously um, recognized how, how different it made him and his family and his upbringing from the rest of American society, but also saw it as a as a positive uh, way to grow up, that he, his mom and his dad loved each other, and he felt very loved and cared for, and, and seems like he had a close, good relationship with both of his parents. You know, and one of the things that you bring out in the book is that, you know, they had limited resources, but, and, and he was a very conservative, mar uh, Mariner was with his money, but he made sure that the kids uh, all got a good education. He spent freely in that area. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like Mariner was thrifty. Um, and I guess you'd have to be if you have eight families to support. Uh, but when it came to education, he was very, very giving. And at the time, uh, for a Latter-day Saint to do what Joseph Merrill did, which is uh, he went to he went to the university here in Utah, which is now the University of Utah, but then went on uh, to study at the University of Michigan, uh, to study at Johns Hopkins University, so the University of Chicago, was unprecedented. Um, most Latter-day Saints would have seen uh, one of their children going back east as, as their worst nightmare. You know, they would think that they'd lose the faith and become worldly. But Mariner saw education as a door to open uh, for his children so that they could have greater opportunities. And it's, it's, it's kind of a, a contrast to that period uh, time, a period of time when the church was very insular, when we were trying to build this separate kingdom that was independent, separate from the world. Mariner is sending this son out into the world to say, we need you to learn as much as you can and, and really learn to express your talents. Now, Mariner was a little concerned that he might uh, favor the girls over the church uh, when he <laughs> sent them out east, correct? That was the one strict piece of educational advice he gave him was don't chase the girls, focus on your education. And that may have had something to do with, hey, maybe he was worried about him meeting a, a Gentile girl to use the language of the time. Um, but it seemed more like, hey, this is a serious deal, and it's going to take you a little while to get through it. And uh, Joseph does get married before he finishes his education, uh, but to a nice Latter-day Saint girl. So at this time, too, this is where he starts developing his fr friendship with the future apostle Richard Lyman. Yeah. Yeah, Richard Lyman and he are uh, both students at the University of Michigan. And uh, at the time, I think that they kind of rotated back and forth between being uh, the branch president there. Um, Richard Lyman is a constant in Joseph Merrill's life. Um, I just met with one of Merrill's granddaughters this morning, and she talked about Richard Lyman coming over to um, go to a football game after Richard Lyman had been excommunicated. Um, they go to school together. When Merrill gets back from school, Richard recruits him to be in a Sunday school presidency he's in. Then they have uh, joining offices at the University of Utah. Richard Lyman is the head of the chemistry department. Joseph Merrill is the head of the School of Mines and Engineering. And uh, then they get made apostles together. And Joseph Merrill follows Richard Lyman as president of the European mission. And I think one of the most devastating days of Joseph Merrill's life uh, was when Richard Lyman was excommunicated and Joseph was uh, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve that had to carry out the excommunication. Well, we're getting a little ahead here. We're getting a little ahead, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, so that's where they first met. Now, this is the time he, he spent some time uh, at Michigan. And uh, then he gets finds his way back to uh, Utah. Uh, 
and he meets this uh, woman um, named Annie Laura, Laura Hyde. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about her. Um, Annie Laura Hyde is, uh, she prefers to go by Laura. Um, Annie's a family, common family name, but she's kind of like Latter-day Saint royalty. Um, uh, Joseph's dad is an apostle, so he's, he, he's nothing to steer at. But where Joseph talks about like, you know, living kind of a hard scrabble existence on a farm in northern Utah, she grows up right in downtown Salt Lake. And her grandpa is John Taylor, who's president of the church. Her other grandpa is Orson Hyde, who's an original member of the Quorum of the Twelve. Uh, the guy that travels to Jerusalem dedicates the Holy Land, and she grows up like in the heart of the church. And so, um, even though Joseph's dad was an apostle and their families were connected in that way, it was uh, kind of something for him to uh, court and date and marry her, uh, because she comes from this this really high prestigious family. In fact, the first time that Joseph proposes marriage to her, he goes to ask her dad's permission, and her dad says no. Her dad, her dad doesn't reject him outright, but he basically says, you don't have any means to support my daughter, and I understand that you're going east to study further, and so I just don't think that right now is the ideal time uh, for the two of you to marry. But that opens the door to another great part of the biography, which is while he's in Baltimore and she's in Utah, they write just reams and reams of letters to each other, and you get this window into 1890s uh, Mormonism right after plural marriage is ended and how two really articulate, smart uh, young people felt about the transitions and changes that were starting to happen within the faith. Uh, at this time, part of the reason um, he, he goes to John, Johns Hopkins and uh, he proposes to her, doesn't uh, basically said, no, you're going back out east. If you come back, maybe then we'll, we'll allow this marriage to uh, occur. But you're right, these, these letters are interesting because it does give a lot of correspondence, but you get a real insight into what kind of person she was. She was uh, actually a, a woman way ahead of her time in, in her viewpoints. You want to yeah, talk about she, that? She doesn't fit the stereotypes of Latter-day Saint women from the 19th century at all. And maybe those stereotypes are wrong to begin with, but uh, she was really interested in politics. She was more politically involved than Joseph was. She's the one that really persuades him to be a Democrat, which he remains the rest of his life because she's so involved. Um, she's interested in the history of the church. Uh, she she writes extensive letters about women in the priesthood and uh, what her views are on Latter-day Saint women holding the priesthood. Some of the stuff she writes, you would assume would be in a in a feminist blog written today um, about her views on, on women's place in the church and how women should have equal status with men. And I mean, when, when they got married, she still went around and gave lectures <laughs> on things that she studied. She becomes head of the Daughters of the Utah Pioneers. She would invite interesting people to come to their house to give lectures. Um, if Joseph Merrill's an unknown figure, his wife, uh, Laura, was even more unknown. And she was one of the real discoveries of this biography was that uh, there was this woman who was just vivacious and curious and engaged with the world around her that was just incredibly articulate and intelligent. And the only place you can really find out anything about her um, is in those letters. It, it's almost a tragedy that after a year of being separated, he comes back to Utah and they get married. And then she goes back to Baltimore with him. And there's no letters after that. Because while I was writing that section of the paper, I just sort of 
really, really um, became enamored with her and, and her viewpoints. And I thought that was one of the great discoveries that were in these papers. It was fascinating reading her letters because it sounded like she was a modern day feminist and her her arguments in favor of female uh, females in the priesthood. It, I thought it was very modern in, the, in, her, in her approach. Yeah, and we, we tend to have this view that Latter-day Saint women in the 19th century were all docile and, you know, just kind of sat back and let the men drive the car. It doesn't seem like that was the case with her at all. And she also hints in the letters as to discussions with other women, especially her mother, about these issues that it seems like the discussions we're having right now aren't really new discussions. They've been around for a really long time, and we're still grappling with some of the same issues as them. And that was a a real delight to find out. The, the sad thing is, is uh, like I said, after they get married, their correspondence uh, ends because they're together all the time. And then uh, Laura passes away in 1917. So we don't get very much material other than that year that he's at graduate school to find out a little bit more about how her views develop. But there are hints here and there in um, notices and newspapers and faculty notices at the University of Utah that she was constantly bringing interesting people to their home and exploring new ideas. And then Joseph, um, uh, Joseph says that she was the direct inspiration uh, for the seminary program, which is probably his biggest accomplishment as an apostle. Yes, yes. And I want to I want to get into that in a little bit. Um, but one of the things I find very interesting is that she, of course, Joseph came from more of a Republican family, and she was obviously a Democrat. And so in these letters, you'd see this constant correspondence going on. And you could tell there's a little bit of sarcasm, and he's having a little fun with some of the stuff that he, she's saying and stuff like that. Uh, you could tell that there was a lot of tenderness there, too, between the two of them. But it was so fascinating, because in many ways, she was so influential on him that essentially, um, he started moving in her direction politically, uh, and but then he found himself in 1896 in uh, for the Chicago Democrat Convention, where they nominated William Jennings Bryan, and now he's sitting just outside of the auditorium, and he's hearing Jennings' famous cross of, uh, of gold uh, speech, and uh, tell us what happened. Yeah, that was a fascinating moment because I love William Jennings Bryan. I think he's one of the most fascinating figures in American history. And it was almost a Forrest Gump kind of <laughs> a phenomenon to find out that Joseph was just outside the auditorium when the cross of gold speech was given. That speech is famous in American history where um, uh, the, the content of the speech is brilliant, but the reactions of people that were there, that it was just electrifying, that Brian was this orator that could just like bring crowds to their feet. And up to that point, Joseph has been coy and even hinted that he's not really all that political. In one of his early letters, he writes to her and says, I don't want a wife that's really political either. And she writes back and just says, just say you're a Democrat. You're a Democrat, say it, say you're a Democrat. And it's kind of that moment when he's in Chicago and he hears that electric speech that he sort of has his full conversion. Remains a Democrat for the rest of his life. In fact, he he runs for democratic office several times while he's at the U and he has this political desire that's kind of stymied uh, by the nebulous area between being a, a state employee as a professor at the U and wanting to be the person that actually makes the rules uh, for the U and the state legislature. One of the things that um, I just wanna plug a book here, it's called A Godly Hero by Michael Kazin. And uh, I bought that, I probably read that book about 10, 12 years ago, and it's, it's about William Jennings Bryan. And I just want to recommend it to my audience, if you want to learn more about him, 
William Jennings Bryan would be what we could call a progressive populist. You could say he was a born again version of Bernie Sanders. Uh, he was somebody who was a real important evangelical, uh, but also historically a very, very important person in American history. Who often he became the Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson, um, and he uh, of course gets buffooned for what happened with uh, the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, and the Inherit the Wind movie kind of unfairly portrays him as just kind of a, a buffoonish type kind of person. William Jennings Bryan was an important person. Um, he was an important evangelical, and a lot of people don't realize that when 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 he was um, doing the Scopes Monkey Trial. A lot of what reason why was is because he saw the atrocities of World War I, and he recognized that social Darwinism and survival of the fittest was, uh, in many ways, the underlying views of some of the people, uh, like uh, on the German side, he was very concerned about some of their ideas. We also had eugenics programs going on in the United States. And I believe it's Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz points out in the preface of the book that, you know, the, the book that was under on trial for the Scopes Monkey Trial um, if you, you had one chapter on evolution, but you had another chapter about eugenics. Yeah. And the reality is, is that this was prevalent. Social Darwinism was, and William Jennings Bryan was fighting against eugenics, nationalism, and social Darwinism. Yeah, and it's really, I, I've got a godly hero on my shelf right behind me. And I, I read that book as background for, for this book. And you're right that Brian doesn't get the, the credit that he's due. I mean, first of all, he's nominated for president several times. He never manages to win, but probably because he's running against, you know, Teddy Roosevelt half the time. And Teddy Roosevelt was one of those popular figures in America. For some reason, the public consciousness is fixed on the Scopes Monkey trial as the moment that defines Brian. And again, he doesn't get... Um, he doesn't always get the back. It's not even the Scopes Monkey Trial. It's the play Inherit the Wind uh, that really has kind of captured the popular image of, of William Jennings Bryan. Because like you said, um, in that interwar period after World War I, before World War II, there was some dark stuff going on with science. I mean, you could argue that uh, the Third Reich was linked to the idea of eugenics. And I mean, the climax is when we were able to use science to create bombs that could destroy entire cities um, it was a time when science and religion were in strict contrast to each other, and they both felt like they had to tear each other down uh, in order to be successful. Um, that was one of the most interesting areas of study in this book, because around the time that the Scopes Monkey Trial is happening, uh, and that's the main conflict that's happening in evangelical Christianity, uh, in Latter-day Saint Christianity, you have uh, multiple university professors uh, that are made high church officials, including Joseph Merrill. But it's not just Joseph Merrill, um, John A. Widsow, uh, James E. Talmadge, uh, Richard Lyman, some of the most important thinkers um, of, of that age are brought into the Quorum of the Twelve. And they're right there alongside someone like Joseph Fielding Smith, who's very much a, a, a dogmatic scriptural fundamentalist. And there's, there's not a, a total absence of conflict, but for the most part, they get along. And one of the things that I wanted to explore in the book is at a time when, when evangelicals and scientists are at each other's throats over the, the inerrancy or the literal nature of the Bible, Latter-day Saints have no problem having a guy who's a physicist or a chemist or an agronomist um, being a church official. And uh, about a large portion of Joseph Merrill's writings were to kind of combat that idea that science and religion have to be adversaries. He saw science and religion as absolute 
um, ways to approach the same problem, that both were trying to discover truth and that they should work together rather than work in opposition to each other. So uh, one of the things um, that, so Brian, Brian, uh, William Jennings Bryan loses the 1896 election, but uh, Joseph uh, makes a point to tell Laura that I promise you that in the next election in 1900, I will, uh, we will attend the inaugural ball for William Jennings Bryan. So at this point, he's completely a convert. Like he, he would love to see him get elected. He's sold. He's sold. And it's, it's not just, it's funny that what sells him on it doesn't appear to be Brian's Christianity. Um, it's Brian's progressivism. It's that Brian um, wants to make the world a better place and, and sees this, this way to do so. Um, unfortunately, Brian, you know, um, winds up running against Teddy Roosevelt instead. And Teddy Roosevelt's a juggernaut that's almost impossible to beat um, with his personality, his larger than life nature. But um, yeah, at that point, Joseph converts to democratic politics and kind of remains in that camp for the rest of his life, though he does get a little squeamish with FDR in the 1930s and the welfare state that's created. So, so uh, at this, so basically now let's transition over to the period of time where, um, you know, Joseph was given a promise that he would um, have a job at the University of Utah, and then a family a relative of his, Kingsbury, becomes the president of, of the university, and uh, it seems as though maybe he's not going to get that job like it was promised to him. Talk a little bit about that conflict. Yeah, Joseph Kingsbury was his uncle. Um, so his mom's maiden name was Kingsbury, and Joseph Kingsbury uh, is raised as a Latter-day Saint, but is agnostic by the time he becomes president of the University of Utah. And so there's all these tensions here because Joseph is still religious. His uncle is not. Uh, that was one of the worries when he went to college, that his uncle would kind of lead him off the covenant path. Um, but there's also all these university politics that happen, too. Because when Joseph gets back from Johns Hopkins, he's the first, um, he's the first PhD uh, first native Utah to get a PhD, I guess I should say. He beats John A. Winslow by just a couple months. Uh, and that gives him kind of this uh, status and clout at the university. And for around, I don't know, 15 years or so, he's the right-hand man at the university. When, when Kingsbury leaves, and Kingsbury still has a distinct mark on the University of Utah, the, the biggest venue up there is Kingsbury Hall. Um, and he's rightfully considered to be the, you know, the father of the University of Utah, it looked like Joseph was right next in line to become the next university president. Unfortunately, um, in 1915, there's this big controversy uh, that breaks up, and it has to do with the fact that even, you know, at that late period, almost 50 or 60 years after the university has been founded, there's tensions over Latter-day Saint influence at the university. And Joseph runs back and forth trying to mediate and mitigate the crisis, but when it comes down to it, uh, the full fury of it hits Kingsbury. Kingsbury's forced to resign. And at that point, Joseph kind of loses his favorite status as the second in command of university and goes back to just being the head of the School of Mines, which is still one of the most important uh, colleges at the university. But um, uh, he gets beat up there. And unfortunately, at that point, he starts to lose faith that he's going to eventually head the university, which he was just all but certain was going to happen. That also comes at a time when there's a, a series of real setbacks in his life. Um, it, it's when his political hopes are kind of dashed. It's when his hopes to head a university are dashed. It's also when Laura dies. And I don't think he ever fully gets over Laura's death. Um, 
he circles back to that. Uh, I found journal entries 20, 25 years after Laura's death, where he's still talking about her and, and what happened to his life when she left. And then um, to, to maybe add a contemporary spin on things, the pandemic of 1918 breaks out and Joseph loses his oldest son uh, in that pandemic. And so it's just from 1915 to about 1919, it was just the hits kept on coming. And almost everything that he saw, the, the direction of his life heading in, uh, started to crumble and fall apart. And he just really, really uh, struggled for a couple of years there until he was able to sort of rebuild his life and rebuild his hopes uh, and went off in this different direction to be an ecclesiastical leader instead of a, a, a scientific and, and um, academic leader. So just I'm going to back up a little bit, because at this period of time, he decides he wanted to run for state Senate. He receives the Democratic nomination two, in two consecutive election cycles. That's the first right. time he runs and uh, was a bad year for Democrats, so he doesn't uh, he didn't have much of a chance of winning. Yeah. Um, but then the second time he ran for state Senate, and this kind of ties into some of the conflicts happening in the school you alluded to. He decides that he was going to run the second time for state Senate. What happens? Well, he kind of felt like the fix was in and that um, because he had a fairly good chance of winning, some people in the legislature manipulated things behind the scenes and basically established this rule that, uh, that a college professor, an employee of the state, couldn't run for Senate. He feels like this wrecks his chances politically, and it's kind of the first in that string of setbacks that we talked about. Now, that, it, it's hard to imagine that happening today. Uh, but in the you know early 20th century, when we're still transitioning away from uh, what what Mormon culture was like in the 19th century, Salt Lake is the epicenter of all this conflict. Um, one of the things I write in the book is that Salt Lake is Rome and Jerusalem uh, together for the Latter Day Saints. It's the center of secular power. It's the center of spiritual power. I mean, even in the architecture in Salt Lake, there's sometimes reflections of this contest between is secular power going to rule the day or is ecclesiastical power. The Salt Lake Temple is the tallest structure in Salt Lake until they build the Utah State Capitol up on the hill. And you can still see those buildings almost in contrast with each other that set up these competing interests of are we building Jerusalem? Are we building Rome? And it's a conflict, to be honest, that still continues till today. Uh, it's manifest in a lot of different ways in downtown Salt Lake. Um, especially the University of Utah, where there's this tug and pull between uh, religious influence and secular influence, and, and there still hasn't been a real resolution of the conflict. So um, during this period of time, you had a lot of upheaval happening at the University of Utah, where you had this uh, student, get Milton C.V., give an inflammatory speech as a valedictorian in front of the governor, and uh, this kind of sets off like uh, basically the state going to the school and saying, uh, well, they're kind of looking out for the church's interests in some ways in a kind of a threatening manner regarding funding. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this controversy was another discovery that I wasn't quite aware of, but um, in educational circles, a big name is John Dewey. Um, John Dewey revolutionized American education at the turn of the century, and John Dewey also founded the American Association of University Professors just a few years before this controversy happens at Utah. Well, in the midst of this, Merrill is second in command at the University of Utah, and he's trying to do damage control, you know, keep professors from leaving, keeping, keep the controversy from being blown up bigger than it is. Uh, but John Dewey's involvement kind of makes it a national story. 
Um, John Dewey, as, as the head of the AAUP, the American Association of University Professors, comes to Utah to investigate what's going on at the University of Utah. And at the time, John Dewey was such a big name in education that if he goes anywhere or does anything, it, it turns into front page news. It's still uh, one of those things that, that gets brought up often as sort of a, a main reason why the AAUP exists to advocate on the right of professors uh, and to protect them from, from influence outside the university. But I mean, we're only, we're only 25 years removed from the end of plural marriage at this point in time. So another reason why the story blows up so big is um, Mormons still make good press, you know? <laughs> um, when when uh, the United States moved against Latter-day Saints in the late 19th century, it was not just to oppress plural marriage, it was also because the government was concerned about the secular power that the saints held in the Utah Territory. So you'll notice a lot of these laws that are supposed to limit plural marriage um, also have provisions in them that the church can't own X number of properties, or the church has to limit its influence in this area or that. And in 1915, when this crisis happens at the University of Utah, you kind of see that specter come back in of, oh, are the, are the Mormons secretly controlling the university? Joseph, as an active Latter-day Saint, um, and as a, a very, very involved leader at the university is kind of caught between these two worlds. And maybe there was undue influence because he's running back and forth between meetings with the Quorum of the Twelve and meeting with, with the Board of Trustees at the university. Uh, but boy, he took it on the chin. And, and it was partially because he had attached himself to Kingsbury. And Kingsbury uh, really, who has this meteoric rise, who builds the university into what it is, is gone almost that quickly overnight. It's, it's devastating. And like I said, it's the first of a devastating series of events that really changed the direction of his life. So I want to, you know, of course, we, you, you talked about Laura uh, passing away. So here he is, he, he's, he has a family and uh, he's obviously devastated. And he uh, meets this woman named uh, Emily or Millie Traub. Mm -hmm. um, now she's a good Lutheran girl. And uh, so she, so she's a Gentile, right? And uh, and <laughs> and uh, he meets her. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, she's not technically a Gentile because she gets baptized. I think three days before they get married. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, contrast her with with Laura, who is you know Latter Day Saint royalty, the the scion of two apostles, uh, with Millie, who's this uh, nice Lutheran lady, uh, who basically before. I couldn't find a lot on her background, to be honest with you, other than family sources, but she is as far away from Laura as you could possibly get. Um, I couldn't find anything other than one letter on how they met and they fell in love, but it's really interesting that, you know, she meets, um, it's clear that she gets baptized um, as part of the marriage. She does come to be a genuine believer and an active Latter-day Saint. Uh, but boy, that must have been whiplash for the family. And I, talking with grandkids that are still around today, Joseph's grandkids are, are in their 90s, but some of them still remember Millie and uh, seeing her and the difficulty that the family had accepting this new mother. Because it's also not that long after Laura's death that he gets remarried. I mean, keep in mind, he's got six kids at home and, uh, and he's a very active university official active in politics, and it must have just been overwhelming for him to lose his wife. And I, I'm not saying he doesn't love Emily, but it's also in, in a lot of ways a marriage uh, that, that was of necessity. He needed somebody to kind of be his companion, help him raise his family. And like I said, she does become 
uh, a dear companion to him, when she passes away and she passes away before uh, he does, he's devastated. But it does appear that his transition and marriage to her was at least initially a, more difficult than his first marriage. And there, there's a couple journal entries where he talks about how stubborn Millie was and how she kind of had this German disposition that she could, you know, dig in her heels and and never be flexible. And that was, I think, a real challenge for him and a challenge for some of his children too. So uh, at this period of time, the the, the opening for the president of uh, of the university, there's an opening, and so he runs in 1921 for president of the university. Tell us a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, that was probably the last in those string of setbacks that he struggles with. Um, he, when, when Joseph Kingsbury was president of the university, it was just a foregone conclusion that Joseph Merrill was going to take over um, his, when he retired or left or whatever he did. But unfortunately, that, that controversy that comes up with those professors earlier leaves a stain on Joseph Merrill uh, that's too difficult to remove. So he, he does make a big effort um, to become president of the university. Uh, but they choose instead Johnny Widsoe, who's later on going to be Joseph's counterpart in the um, in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, uh, to take his place instead. And after that, you can see Merrill uh, sort of casting about professionally, figuring out what he's supposed to do with his life. So he applies to be president of another university, of um, the, the Agricultural College, which is now Utah State University. Um, he starts looking at other professional options. And for a couple of years, he just sort of is adrift there. You get the feeling that, that he and Winslow didn't have the warmest relationship at the university. They do become pretty good friends later on. Uh, but Joseph is just kind of settled into, I'm going to do my job and make sure that my, my, uh, my college or my school is, is okay. But he's sort of out of the inner circle at that point. It's not really until he leaves the university and goes to the church that he gets the same kind of verve back in his life that he had earlier. He spends a couple of years there, I think, in the wilderness, just sort of not knowing what his next professional achievement is going to be. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he gets this chance to go and work for the church. And that leads him down the last 25 years of his life. So he becomes the president of the church school system. And, yeah. and at this point, you're basically trying to integrate the church academies, the public schools, and all the stuff that's going on there. Now, he, it was really important to him early on about these um, this proper religious education because as Laura would tell the stories to the children from the Book of Mormon, and it really hit him like, you know, this is the result of having a good education of our scriptures. And so that was part of the reason um, he was interested in developing this, but also just kind of get into a little bit about what this period of time was like for him. Yeah, so as, as background, Latter-day Saints really believe in education strongly, but there was this worry when the public school system started up in the United States that if Latter-day Saints only went to public schools, they would lose their testimony. And so at first, leaders of our church uh, tried starting their own high school system, what were known as the church academies. Um, and academies were successful and flourished for around 20 years, but it was pretty hard for a Latter-day Saint family to justify paying academy tuition when there's a high school down the road that's free. And in the early 20th century, academy enrollment peaks and then it starts to sort of decline. Well, Joseph didn't really have the option of sending his kids to a church academy. So they're gonna go to Granite High School and he gets put into the state presidency and wants to come up with some way 
to make sure that they still get religious education, even if they're attending a high school. So one of the one of the odd things about Utah, Idaho, parts of Nevada and Arizona is if you go to a high school, especially in Utah, right across the street, there's a building there. There's a Latter-day Saint seminary where uh, for an hour every day or every other day, students will leave the high school. They'll go over. They'll be taught uh, from the scriptures and taught about their religion. I was one of those guys. I was a seminary teacher before I became a professor at the university. And um, Joseph Merrill is really the architect of that system. So that, that system is so effective that by 1920, the superintendent of church schools, Adam Benyon, basically does a cost-benefit analysis. And he says, hey, we are spending $100 for every dollar uh, at an academy that we spend for a student at a seminary. It's just cheaper and we can basically accomplish the same thing. Why don't we let the, the state pay for, you know, nine-tenths of a person's education and we'll just pay for their religious education. And that system is so successful that basically in the 1920s, the church starts to shut down all of its academies. They even consider closing down Brigham Young University at one point. And that transition is in flux when Adam Benyon just suddenly resigns and they look to Joseph Merrill as the initial architect of the seminary system to come in and take over the whole thing. The problem is he gets made commissioner in 1928 and then two years, well, a year later, really, the Great Depression happens. And even before the Great Depression, Utah was already struggling economically. And so Joseph is given the unfortunate task of coming up with a replacement for almost all church schools and then doing something that's kind of unpleasant, which is going around and shutting down or transferring to state control of the remaining church schools. So if you go to Utah, there's schools like Weber and Snow and Dixie that were all church schools originally. There's also schools in Idaho and Arizona that were church schools originally that were transferred in the 1930s uh, to the state and have, be have become fairly successful secular universities. The only ones that we hang on to really are BYU, uh, and um, Rick's College, which is now BYU-Idaho. And we try to get rid of Rick's College three different times, but Idaho won't take it. And so it hangs in there and eventually grows to become a really prosperous, really great school, uh, that it's an integral part of the church school system. But yeah, in, in that sense, he's, he's kind of thrust into this difficult position, but does create the modern church educational system as we know it. Now, there starts to become a conflict where you have kind of the separation of church and state issue. You have this gentleman by the name of Isaac Williamson, yeah. who kind of, uh, he commissions a report, doesn't involve Joseph in the uh, process of th these talks and stuff like that. And so we kind of have like a conflict between Williamson and what Merrill's trying to do. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Isaac Williamson is an outsider to Utah culture. So uh, Isaac Williamson is born in Kansas and then moves to Eureka, which as strange as this sounds, in Utah, there are Gentile towns and there are Latter-day Saint towns. Eureka is this um, mining community in the Tintic Mountains uh, that is a Gentile town right next to Silver City, which is a Mormon mining town. And Williamson gets made the, uh, the, the state uh, high school inspector, and he's appalled by the seminary system. Uh, partially because there really was maybe too much overlap between the two. The kids weren't just leaving to go and study religion for an hour. Uh, the seminary teachers were in the high school yearbook. And um, if a kid missed seminary, the, the seminary teacher could call the high school and report them and they'd get in trouble. And at the time, uh, there was an arrangement between the state and the church 
that a student could get credit for biblical studies. So when a student was going to high school, they would study the Old Testament one year, the New Testament, um, and then study church history. And the years they were studying the Old and New Testament, they would get credit for Bible study. And so Williamson is appalled at this. And he writes this scathing report. I mean, it takes up an entire page of incredibly small print in the Salt Lake Tribune. When I transcribed the entire report, I think it was something like 21 pages long, uh, single space, where he just goes through criticism after criticism of the seminary system. And he does this right after they have just gotten rid of all the church schools. So they put all their eggs in one basket. Um, and the educational program that the church had basically come to rely on was the seminary system. And now it looks like the seminary system is going to be eliminated uh, because of actions of the state superintendent. So Joseph Merrill has to kind of swing into action. And he sets up a lot of the legal precedents uh, that make it possible for other systems uh, in other places around the country uh, to do it. Because uh, release time seminary, um, probably the, the earliest, most successful program is the one Merrill starts in Utah. But there's release time programs all over the United States. Um, they're not as extensive today as they were in the mid-20th century, but there's three or four um, cases that come before the United States Supreme Court about the legality of release time. And for the most part, it's upheld uh, in all those cases. But this was the earliest skirmish of, hey, is it, is, it, um, is it overdoing it? Is it erasing the wall between church and state if there's this building next door to the high school where theology is taught? That's still something that um, sometimes raises people's hackles here in Utah because they see seminaries as another expression of the church's uh, secular power. So basically, um, they're able to keep the program with the separate buildings and everything like that. Um, and then this point, um, we fast forward a little bit and uh, Joseph becomes an apostle. Yeah. Yeah, so it may have been his handling of the seminary program. It may have just been his proximity to the general authorities. I believe it was revelation. Uh, but Joseph becomes a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. And in that sense, is, is elevated into the highest councils of the church and spends the rest of his life there. Um, he does some interesting things along the way. For instance, one of the reasons why that seminary program got in trouble was because they didn't have professional enough teachers. And so he starts to realize if this is going to work, we need to have religion scholars like other faiths do. The other, at the same time, too, he was starting the Institutes of Religion, which was kind of a seminary college program. So at most universities throughout the United States, there's a building somewhere nearby uh, where Latter-day Saint uh, students can go and do the same thing, basically take an institute class that supplements their secular uh, learning. Um, Joseph sends a bunch of scholars to Chicago so that they can learn about uh, the latest in religious thinking. Um, the problem is, is that Latter-day Saints at this time are very conservative, but they're also still seen with suspicion by other Christians. So Chicago is probably the most liberal theological school in the United States. And um, the reason why Joseph has to send them there is only a liberal school would accept Latter-day Saints period. I mean, I even have a friend who five years ago was rejected uh, from an evangelical seminary because he was a Latter-day Saint. Um, Joseph sends them there, and they learn all these latest things, but it does cause some, some waves within the church, because for the first time, we really introduced professional uh, biblical studies into the church. 
And I, in a lot of ways, it's a great thing to bring Latter-day Saints into the 21st century. In another way, it creates tension because in most churches, uh, the leaders of the church aren't people that have theology degrees and choose to go into the ministry professionally. That's never been the case in our church. So in the 1930s, you've got these guys that are studying religion professionally at a divinity school when the head of the church is Heber J. Grant, who Heber J. Grant was a businessman. I mean, he was, he was a gifted leader, no doubt, and charismatic uh, and a prophet, but he didn't have any kind of background in theology. And so these guys are coming back and some of them, you know, felt the, 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 the discord that sometimes came from being a person that knows a ton about the Bible, but having to serve under the direction of someone uh, who's a prophet, but who doesn't know as much about the scriptures as they do. Mm, Joseph yes. kind of has to mediate between the two. Yeah, it's a very, very common thing um, where he's meeting, mediating these waters. And one thing's, one of the statements you, that makes its way into the book throughout is uh, between the devil and the deep blue sea. That was the original title of the book, actually. <laughs> but my publisher was a little uncomfortable with the word devil being um, on the cover of a book about an apostle. So we settled on Truth Seeker, which I'm happier with anyway. But throughout Joseph's life, he says, I went to the university and I was still a devout Latter-day Saint, but everybody that was a Latter-day Saint saw me as an apostate because I was at the university. And everybody at the university uh, saw me as an apostate because I was still an active Latter-day Saint. And he spent his almost entire life um, trying to build bridges between those two worlds to basically say, you can be religious and still be well-educated, and you can be a, a scholar, and an academic, and still believe in God. That's almost what all of his writings are about. In fact, uh, let me share one quick quote with you. This is um, when, when they're setting up the Institute of Religion program, uh, which is supposed to be a, a theology department attached to a university that Latter-day Saints can go to. He writes a letter to the first Institute director, Wiley Session, and he says, I am convinced that religion is as reasonable as science, that religious truths and scientific truths nowhere are in conflict, and that there's one great unifying purpose extending through all creation, that we're living in a wonderful, though at the present time, deeply mysterious world, and there's an all-wise, all-powerful creator at the back of it. So he spends a lot of his time trying to sort of connect these two worlds that he exists in. And in his life, I mean, really, Half of his professional career is spent in academia as a scientist. Um, half of his life is spent as an apostle, as an ecclesiastical leader. And it always struck me that, I mean, this is right when the Scopes Monkey Trial was going on, by the way. Uh, this is when evangelicals and, uh, and scientists are at each other's throat, that Merrill is an, a prime example of someone that really didn't see any conflict between the two. I, I tried to find if he ever broached the subject of evolution. Uh, and as far as I can find, he never did. But his argument uh, about that would be, why are we playing around in the mud when we have this beautiful universe that surrounds us that's so complex and clearly isn't accidental? Um, why are we worried about um, this subject? There's so much evidence that God exists and that there's a divine creator that we're sort of arguing over incidentals that don't really matter that much in the long run. So, uh, yeah, that's very fascinating. I think that's really the heart of the story, you know, of him is, is him being at the convergence of fundamental, fundamentalist modernist controversies and all these different things. And he's trying to take a more broader approach and, and how he sees, you know, holistically. Um, so I think he was a man ahead of his time. Um, I just want us to talk a little bit about his time 
so he gets called to be an apostle mm -hmm. and then he's sent to the european mission mm -hmm. um millie comes along and she doesn't like some of the early stuff initially because she has to speak more than she wants to uh, but just talk a little bit about their transition into the uh, european mission yeah so at the time the european mission was sort of the um plum well i won't say it's plum it was a challenging assignment but it was where they sent the newest, most vigorous apostle. So David O. McKay, who later becomes church president, is, is European mission president. James E. Talmadge is one of our most important theologians. Richard Lyman immediately precedes him, and he's followed by John A. Whitsaw. I mean, it's just lineup after lineup of these heavy hitters that become important thinkers and theologians within the church. And so it, it was pretty natural um, for the newest apostle to go to Europe and preside over all these missions. It's just that Joseph does so at a really interesting time. Um, he arrives in 1933 and he's there for three years until 1936. And there is some crazy stuff happening in Europe during that time that he's privy to. Uh, for instance, one controversy that sprang up was that Joseph spoke at a, at a church conference held in Germany where there was a, a swastika uh, flag behind him. That caused controversy uh, for the church. I don't think he was aware that that was going to be there. And he definitely wasn't um, ambiguous in his feelings about Hitler and the, his feelings about the movement that was rising in Germany. I mean, that was a difficult time for the church. Um, but he, he's kind of in the midst of this worldly setting. So he, he's always been a little bit more secular because of his background. And all of a sudden, he's thrust into London, which is the center of all culture at that time, and he has to kind of negotiate it. One of the things he notices at the time is that Latter-day Saints are still proselyting in London like it's the 1840s, you know? They're still just basically walking down to Hyde Park and setting out an apple crate and standing up on it starting to preach. Uh, Joseph starts to say, why don't we make movies or film strips? Uh, why don't we uh, do a Magic Lantern show, which was just basically a slideshow, but in the 1930s was a sort of novel form of entertainment. And he recruits this, this missionary named Gordon B. Hinckley, um, who uh, really, really latches onto this idea of new media approaches. There's all these letters back and forth between Joseph Merrill and the church hierarchy, where he basically says, we have got to drag missionary work into the 20th century. Like, Let's, let's get up to date. And eventually when, when Gordon B. Hinckley is released from his mission, he gets uh, sent back to report to the first presidency. And they're so impressed with him that um, they hire him. Uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, who I'm sure you're aware of, Steve, is when he becomes president of the church, he's not only the longest serving apostle, he's the senior employee at church headquarters. He gets hired in, I think, 1935 or something like that, and then just stays there until his death. Uh, in 2008, and he oversees this radical media approach that the church has too. Because after polygamy and um, you know Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, probably the next thing that most people think of when they think of church is those commercials about loving your family that the NSA brought to you by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. President Hinckley is the mastermind behind all that. And it's part of the reason why the church in the 20th and 21st century has been so quick to embrace new forms of media. Um, let's set up a website, let's do podcasts, let's, um, let's use YouTube and things like that are all part of this mindset that Merrill inculcates in, in Gordon B. Hinckley. And when Gordon B. Hinckley gets back, he starts immediately writing radio scripts. And uh, even things like our worship within the temple, which is now done mostly, most of the instruction is given through a film is the brainchild of Gordon B. Hinckley, but he's still working with 
Joseph Merrill, who's his mentor. I mean, when, when Merrill passes away, Gordon B. Hinckley writes the article on his life as, his, as, as one of his most influential, important mentors. Yeah, I think that's really important that it comes out in this book that um, Hinckley, uh, he, he, he cut his teeth uh, there in the European mission and, he, and really was inspired by Joseph to do the media stuff. And so that's how much of an impact that Joseph had on, on the history of the church that people don't realize how influential he was over Gordon B. Hinckley. Yeah, and, and I mean, one of Merrill's legacies, part of the reason why I think he's forgotten is he doesn't write very much. Um, James E. Talmadge and Johnny Woods are remembered from this era because they wrote a lot of things. Uh, Merrill didn't write a lot, but his key thing that he brought to the table appears to have been innovation. Like he would show up and say, do we have to do it this way? Why don't we do it this way instead? Uh, this way doesn't seem to be working. And that that's more a mindset that he brought from his training as a scientist than any kind of ecclesiastical position. You know, I've been, a, I've been an ecclesiastical leader and I love my experience, but sometimes, you know, in ecclesiastical circles, it's not what's working best, it's what we've always done. And, and Joseph Merrill was kind of willing to come in with a wrecking ball basically and say, I know we've done it this way, but is this the best way to do it? Is this the best way to do missionary work? Is this the best way to do education? Um, are there new approaches out there? And another thing that he brought to the table really was a, a willingness to kind of step outside the church. Our, our church had been so insular that if it wasn't an idea that came from us, we viewed it with suspicion. Merrill got the idea for seminaries, according to one of his daughters, from watching um, a Vesper service at the University of Chicago. And he got the idea from for media approaches from watching movies and viewing film strips and thinking, you know what, we, we don't have to keep doing things the way that they're doing. Uh, that spirit of innovation is something that I hope is still alive within our faith, but we might even need to think more deeply about. Like, it's the 21st century and religion is struggling in the United States right now. We need to start thinking of different things that we can do and new approaches uh, that will help people connect with God. Uh, so that they can they can partake of the blessings that come from that. So yeah, he, he refers to the fact that over a period of about a decade, he attended about 350 different churches. Uh -huh. And he also, while he was doing the European mission, uh, also attended the World Congress of Faiths. Yeah. So here was a man that was definitely exposed to other branches of Christianity as well as other religions. Yeah, he was. And that was incredibly valuable in his approach. He wasn't afraid to look at another church and say, look at how they're doing things. Uh, could we maybe do something similar? Um, and he didn't see that as any kind of delusion of the faith. In the first 50 years of the church, there was such a kind of insular, us against the world type of feeling that was created in part by plural marriage, uh, that one of Merrill's main contributions is to basically say, look, there is both good and bad in the world around us. Let's try and find the good and see what we can what we can take into our own faith. Uh, one of the most common quotes from his era was um, George Albert Smith, who's president of the church, whose mantra was, bring all the good that you have, and we'll add to it. They, they transitioned during this period from seeing everybody as Babylon and their enemy to seeing them as part of the world, and there's good and bad things in the world, and we can draw from the good and use it to, to advance the purposes of the kingdom of God. So, uh one of the opportunities in which he is able to kind of get documented, of course, he speaks at general conference and stuff like that, but he also gave a series of radio talks to talk about science and religion. Now, we talked a little bit about that, but just talk about your 
feel it, your perspective of where he was coming from. You say he wasn't, a, he was a blunt writer, wasn't like a poetic writer or anything like that, but wrote in a very common way, but you kind of got uh, a good sense of, uh, he was to the point and, and wrote, uh, you thought that he did interesting uh, writings with that. Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, he wasn't much of a writer, to be honest with you. We, and we do have some gifted writers from the period like Johnny Woodsow, James E. Talmadge, Orson F. Whitney is who, um, Joseph Merrill places the Quorum of the Twelve. Orson F. Whitney is probably the greatest poet in the history of the church. Um, Joseph Merrill characteristically agrees to give a series of radio addresses. Um, and these get compiled together into this book, which is really, really rare. This is The Truth Seeker and Mormonism. That's where the title of my book came from. Uh, where basically, if you take a look at the subjects he's addressing here, it doesn't sound like your typical, you know, sermon on God. You look at the um, pages, and um, one of the titles of his addresses is Electricity, Light, and Materialism. Like, that doesn't sound, you know, like someone ripping a text out of the Bible. And, and quoting it is partially because I think Merrill, throughout his entire life, was still more comfortable in the realm of science than he was in the realm of religion. But he just got so excited about science as a way of saying, look, this is a text, too. This testifies of the power of God as much as uh, Genesis or Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or John does. This is another way that God is speaking to us and showing to us that, that he loves us and helps us. Like one of the, one of the subject headers in here is nature is kind to man. And I found out in my research that he was directly calling out Thomas Edison when he said that. They asked Thomas Edison about his belief in God. Thomas Edison said, I don't really believe in God. And when they asked him why, he said, because nature is not kind to man. Edison's view was everything in the universe seems conspired to kill us, basically. There's so many ways for a person to die. Merrill, in his book, argues back, what are you talking about? Like, we live on this world where conditions are absolutely perfect for us to exist and for us to grow and to learn and to make choices. How can you argue that nature is unkind to man when we've literally been given everything we need to, to live and to, and to find joy and exist here. So he, he's arguing more in that field. Like if you keep going down the list, um, uh, the problem of physical evil, uh, science and immortality, shall we live beyond the grave? Um, one of the classics, eat meat sparingly. <laughs> uh, he's the last apostle in general conference to really hammer that point of the word of wisdom that we're supposed to eat meat sparingly. And by the way, he wasn't a hypocrite either. He took assiduous notes in his journal and it was very vegetarian. Uh, but he, he saw science not as uh, an enemy to faith, but as a way to strengthen faith. Um, there's this quote by Carl Sagan and that I've always loved where Carl Sagan was very much not a religious person. Uh, but he said, a religion old or new that found a way to grasp the discoveries of science might be capable of drawing forth reserves of awe unheard of so far. And then he said, sooner or later, such a religion will emerge. Well, that's exactly what Joseph Merrill's trying to do. He's trying to say, we have the, the scriptures to teach us about the nature of God, but what does the universe tell us about the nature of God also? And, and how come we can't just look up from the dirt every now and then and see how amazing and wonderful the cosmos is and use that as evidence that there's clearly somebody out there that loves us and created this on our behalf. That's a really refreshing um, approach even in the 21st century for a person to take. And that was one of those ways where I got to tell you, Steve, honestly, I was writing most of this stuff when I was in graduate school. And graduate school is where they just hammer you over and over again to make you so cynical 
about every kind of authority structure that exists. And some of that cynicism honestly is warranted, but it starts to transfer over into all areas of your life where you start to wonder if you really can have a happy marriage or if God is really there, it's just another system of control. And Elder Merrill in a lot of ways acted as my mentor while I was going through uh, my education to say to me, no, you can't, you can't just use the spirit of inquiry to be negative. You've got to look at the positive things in the world too, and the beauty that surrounds us, and see that as evidence that there's a higher power. I mean, in a lot of ways, he saved my testimony of God, and I'm really, really grateful for that. You know, uh, you reference a couple spiritual experiences that Joseph had in the book. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, and, and talking about him as a transitional figure, um, let me first talk about his dad and what spiritual experiences were like for his dad. So Mariner Merrill grows up in the 19th century when it's not uncommon for a Latter-day Saint to say, I saw an angel or I beheld a vision, anything like that. Um, Wilford Woodruff at one point just records in his journal that he was beaten up by Satan and then three angels healed him. And it's just like an average ordinary day thing. Um, Mariner has a vision when he first joins the church where he sees everything, including the trek to the West, plural marriage, Brigham Young, everything. And later on in Mariner's life, I mean, he records an experience when he's present at the Logan Temple, where he looks out the window and sees a man standing on the lawn, walks out and says, who are you? And the guy says, my name is Satan, and I'm here to stop people from coming to the temple. Like his dad has conversations with the devil like it's no big deal. Uh, in contrast, Merrill grows up in this world where he deeply longs to have the kind of spiritual experiences his dad has, but he just doesn't have them. He said, when I was 10 years old, I was told if I prayed, God would manifest himself to me. And so I started praying every single night for a manifestation. And he said, for 10 years, I received no manifestation. In fact, um, the first manifestation that he gets is um, the night before he's supposed to leave home and go to the University of Utah. Uh, he kneels down one last time thinking this has never worked and I don't know if it's ever going to work, but it's important to my family. So he kneels down to pray and he gets an answer. He has a theophany. He doesn't talk about anything grand like a vision or seeing an angel. He just says that he distinctly heard or felt a voice tell him that what he'd been praying for was true. And that with one other spiritual experience are, are, are basically what he builds his faith around. The second spiritual experience happens at the end of his education. So now he's been to the university, he's got a master's degree, he's been going to Johns Hopkins and getting a PhD. He's on the train back to Utah when he opens up the newspaper and sees that Richard Lyman um, has been called as a Sunday school president. And at this point, he openly admits, I had just decided that I was going to come back and be a member of the church, but not necessarily, you know, be that active. I was going to be as neutral as possible because I had to exist in both these worlds. Well, the moment he looks at it, he gets another kind of lightning experience where he said, I heard or felt a voice say, you're going to serve as Richard's counselor. And it's, it's electric. It like fills his entire body. And he just pauses and out loud on the train says, is this, not, this is strange. Is not this strange? When he gets off the train, Richard Lyman is there. And Joseph just makes the decision of, you know what? I'm not going to try and be neutral. I'm going to try and make both worlds work for me, both the secular and the spiritual. There's got to be a way to do it. And he spends the rest of his life reconciling those two things. So it's interesting that where his dad, you know, just doesn't think twice about Satan appearing and talking to him. And, uh, and him having a conflict one-on-one -on -one with the devil, to Joseph, these spiritual experiences were harder to come by. 
And he also tried to reconcile scientifically what had happened to him spiritually. I mean, later on, he writes up that experience that he has on the train and sends a description of his physiological response to a conservatory in Boston to just basically say, what could have caused this? And, and what is this like? Because he figured that we could also understand the whisperings and promptings of the Holy Ghost through secular means, that there was a way for the two to meet together. Now, most of us would say there's a dichotomy between science and religion. One is here and one is here. But this is just another example of Joseph saying they don't have to be separate. They can be the same thing. And there's a way for them to overlap without conflicting with each other. Now, we had a conversation the other day, and you told me that you actually had some spiritual experiences while doing research on this project. I just wanted to know if you wanted to share some of that. A ton of spiritual experiences. Um, one day when I was going through um, their, the letters that Joseph and Laura wrote to each other while they were in grad school, I opened up an envelope and a, a lock of blonde hair fell out. Uh, I assumed that she just, you know, snipped off part of her hair and put it in him. That was probably a common practice in the 19th century. Uh, but, oh my gosh, at the moment that, that hit me that I wasn't just talking about abstract entities here or characters in a book, that these were real people uh, that struggled with their faith and struggled with um, their, their world that they grew up in that struggled to know their place and struggled um, just being apart from each other, you know, that longed for each other while they were separated. In um, one of the beautiful things about, about our faith that I really love is this idea that you can connect with your ancestors. And um, you're, you're probably deeply familiar, Steve, with our concept of work for the dead uh, and, and being able to go to the temple and do ordinances on behalf of people that are dead. Um, I think that, that history is work for the dead. I really do. I know that we don't do baptisms or endowments or ceilings or anything like that. And I didn't do anything like that for Joseph Merrill. He didn't need me to. Uh, but I think that when we explore their stories uh, and we understand them and we connect with them, um, in a lot of ways, it is work for the dead. It's us building this, what Joseph Smith would call ceiling link between the generations and coming to understand them. But it's just as important for, for a person in, in our faith to, to have their ancestor baptized as it is for us to understand them fully. And even though Joseph Merrill is, is you know, on all the roles and he's in the books and, you know, he's, he's on the list of church leaders that we have, uh, researching his life and the people in his life, especially the women in his life, uh, was, was really, really illuminating uh, to me. Um, uh, to the point to where, you know, in my own marriage, um, there's a tendency sometimes when you're married <laughs> to always see the grass is greener on the other side. Um, when I started reading those passages in his journal, when he talked about how much he missed his first wife and how devastating it was to lose her, I started to realize I'm taking my wife for granted. Uh, how would I react in this situation if suddenly I lost my wife and I had to, I had to manage my family and move on without her, I'd be absolutely devastated. And so in, in connecting with him and the grace and the wisdom that he developed through these really difficult experiences in his life were just really instructive for me. Like he came, uh, he came from being a historical figure that I was just researching so I could get a master's degree so that I could get a raise at my job to being a really fleshed out person that feels like 
you know, someone that has mentored me and in a lot of ways been my most important mentor. Um, you talk about an author becoming involved in their subject. Uh, I felt like I was involved in his life to the point to where right before I talked with you, I met with his granddaughter and right after I'm going to meet with two grandsons uh, just to kind of share with them uh, things that, that they might not have known. Because uh, the other thing about Merrill is he was very reserved too. Like he wasn't out there waving hands. And I think he was always a little uncomfortable in his position as an ecclesiastical leader because he saw himself as a scientist first and apostle second and didn't talk a ton openly about his faith. Uh, because of that, it's been a major blessing for me to not only rediscover him myself, but to allow his family uh, to, to rediscover him through the research that I've been able to do. Hmm. Yeah, wow. You know, I just uh, wanted to cover a couple other things. Uh, this, this is a great book, and I heartily recommend it to the audience. Um, I, I, know, I got to know you through uh, watching uh, our mutual friend, uh, Rick Bennett's uh, Gospel Tangents, and you talked about the book 50 Relics of the Restoration, which uh, is an interesting book. Uh, yeah, I think it's in the back there, uh, prominently right there. shown. Yeah. And uh, so that's a good book that people might want to check out uh, as well. And one of the things that I also found very interesting in that interview is that you talked about some of the interfaith dialogue that you, or interreligious dialogue, interfaith dialogue that you're having with other groups within the Restoration. Yeah. Um, in particular, our mutual friend, Patrick McKay, um, is somebody that you're in contact with in Independence, Missouri. Let's talk a little bit about some of your outreach efforts you've been making with other branches of the Restoration. Yeah, um, another influence Joseph Merrill had on me was, you know, you talked about how he visited all these other services. Um, he, he met with the World Congress of Religions and represented Latter-day Saints there. And he sort of inspired me to say, if I have the means, I need to start reaching out to other religions. Uh, too. The first one that uh, the Lord just basically opened the door for me um, was uh, members of the Restoration Movement. So people from churches like Community of Christ, um, or Patrick is part of the Joint Conference of Restoration Branches, uh, which was affiliated with Community of Christ as kind of its own thing. Uh, the Remnant Church in Independence, Missouri, the House of Aaron, which we talked a little bit about uh, before we started the tape. Um, and, and to see how God works in all these different um, movements. Like, I, think, I think very much when I started this process, I was kind of a Latter-day Saints are the only true church and we're the only true church. And why even bother with other religions? Instead of talking to them, we should be out there converting their you know, congregants. And now I, I, I still believe that this is the true church, but I also see the hand of God and how it operates in other religions. And I've, you know, come to that painful conclusion that a lot of us get to later on in life that every person is God's son or daughter and is entitled to love and revelation and guidance from God too, that Latter-day Saints don't have the monopoly on the Holy Ghost. Uh, and there's so much to be learned and so many good people in other religions out there to the point to where someone like Patrick McKay um, is a dear friend who I just admire so much. Uh, and think is a beautiful soul. Uh, there's other people like Andrew Bolton, uh, who, who is a who, former apostle from Community of Christ that I just love and, and honestly feel a, feel a kinship to and a connection to. And I'll be honest with you, Steve, I still hope all these people join the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. <laughs> I hope you do. Um, and I've, I've been honest with them about it. I've even said to Andrew Bolton, like, hey, if you don't join as soon as you're gone, I'm going to baptize you anyway. So there's no way you're getting away from me. But I also see where, where God has led them 
and and the good that they've been able to do within their own respective spheres and as an adult have kind of come to appreciate that there's a much bigger uh there's a much bigger realm of god's influence than than i originally uh, thought of back when i was a young enthusiastic missionary uh, for the church i still retain that enthusiasm i still love the church but my life is so much richer uh, because of the associations that I've been able to gain through those interfaith relationships. And that, that by the way, is the next book coming down the pike is um, we've written a book uh, with uh, scholars from Community of Christ and scholars from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where we're just talking to each other about what we believe and where we have commonalities and where we have differences. And that has been a great pleasure to work on as well. Yeah. And when is that book coming out? Um, we are finishing up the manuscript right now. We're hoping that we have everybody's chapters in by August. And then Andrew and I are going to write the uh, introduction and epilogue. And we hope, we hope that by uh, 2022, okay. uh, the aim is fall 2022. We're hoping that uh, for the 50th anniversary of John Whitmer, we can get it done. Okay. You go to John Whitmer. Uh, I, that was the first group I joined. I joined John Whitmer and then I joined the Mormon History Association. And I serve on John Whitmer's board. And, you know, on behalf of them, I'm issuing you a formal invite to our conference in fall 2022, which is the 50th anniversary. And we hope coronavirus is over by then. Um, but I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, there are a couple, you know, have you had any dialogue with anybody from the Church of Jesus Christ, the Bicker Tonight organization? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Daniel Stone, who I believe you've interviewed, mm -hmm. uh, is a dear friend of mine. I love Daniel. Daniel's like my brother. Um, and he and I have had a number of really, really wonderful conversations. Um, I, he's hung out with my wife. I've hung out with him and his wife. Um, he's just a dear, dear friend that honestly, uh, I, I wish, I wish lived a little bit closer. <laughs> I want to get Daniel an academic position at a university so we can hang out at the same conferences because Daniel is doing what he's doing on his own dime and that is so admirable he, he's such a pure soul daniel oh, he's, he's a great guy I and, just, and almost all my dealings with people from the church of jesus christ bicker tonight um and then that, that's another thing i've had to yeah, learn is that i'm a the brighamite yeah. yeah you're a brighamite <laughs> I, i'm a brighamite um i don't take those titles with any kind of offense um but i also recognize the sensitivity the first time i referred to daniel as my bicker tonight friend uh, Daniel very politely corrected me and said, we like to be called the Church of Jesus Christ. And I understood mm -hmm. uh, the sensitivity there. He's Absolutely. just a good guy. Yeah, yeah he is. You know, Saturday morning, I had an hour long Zoom call with a gentleman who's going to become an, a, a newly installed apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ uh, This for their uh, fall general conference, if that's what they call it. Uh, and so I had a nice conversation with him. I had the opportunity to uh, just give you a little chronology here. My first foray into the restoration was through a, a Community of Christ book club where we talked about the biography of Joseph Smith III. And that's where I met Lachlan McKay and Barbara Walden. And so I got, and then I started, then the next thing you know, I'm talking to Patrick McKay because people are saying, you need to talk to this person and talk to that person. So I talked to Patrick McKay and have a wonderful Saturday evening telephone conversation that I tell people kind of changed the trajectory of the channel. But the very first church that I ever entered into uh, through the to the restoration, which I thought is the perfect church to come to, was the Church of Jesus Christ north of Tampa. And I had a wonderful time worshiping with them. And I, I'm very proud to 
have had, I've since have attended a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Lehigh, Utah, Rick Bennett's home congregation. Yeah, so, that's just a mile away from my home congregation too. So, so well, I was in your neck of the woods. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, I'm just, uh, it's just really an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to these people in these different groups. And I think what you're doing is so awesome because you're reaching out to these different groups and having conversations with them and trying to find areas of agreement. I always tell people, let's just look for the Jesus and let's look for the commonalities that we share with each other. Absolutely. Absolutely. And oh boy, a phrase like look for the Jesus resonates with me quite a bit because, you know, people start out in these smaller insular worlds. And I think that, I think that God wants us to see the bigger world. There's so much around us that kind of pushes us into our own silos and our own spheres and says, you know what, just stay with people that are like-minded uh, to you. And I think that God really wants us to see and embrace all cultures. I think about Paul's writings in the New Testament where he's like, when I was with the Greeks, I was a Greek. And when I was with the Romans, I was a Roman. And I no longer see that as Paul being a little duplicitous. I see it as Paul saying, I learned to love these people for what they are and to see where we can connect together. And so my, my first family was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but I, now I see a bigger family, that's the Restoration family. And I also see, you know, an even bigger family, which is the family of Christianity and then the family of humanity uh, that we can all connect to and all understand through Jesus Christ uh, how important we are to each other and how important we are to God. Mm. Amen. So, uh, Casey, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on to the program. The name of the book is Truth Seeker, The Life of Joseph F. Merrill, Scientist, Educator, and Apostle. I think I got the first copy east of the Mississippi, hot you off the presses. probably do. <laughs> and uh, it was a real privilege to be among the first to read this book, uh, Casey. Casey, uh, any final words for my audience? Just thank you what you're doing uh, for what you're doing, Steve. I I always try and look for bridge builders uh, around us and try to connect with them. And the fact that someone from your faith would reach out and, and talk about someone who's an obscure figure, even in my faith, uh, means a lot to me. So thank you for what you're doing and, and God bless you with the bridges that you're, you're building right now. Well, thank you, I appreciate that. I just want to um, remind my audience to hit the like and subscribe button and also make sure you hit the bell notification so you'll be informed when a new video comes out. Everybody, you have yourself a wonderful day and God bless.